while you're finding your place there. Share a couple little tidbits with you here. You know, we all have to make choices in life, and often those choices result in very significant consequences. Let me just share a few choices. For example, in 1920, the management of the Boston Red Sox made the choice to sell Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. And after joining the Yankees, in 10 out of the next 12 seasons, Babe Ruth by himself hit more home runs than the entire team of the Boston Red Sox. Then there was in 1938, Joe Shuster and Jerry Siegel sold all their rights for a comic book character that they had invented, and they sold all their rights for that character's name for $130, that character's name, Superman. Then in 1955, we have the choice of Sam Phillips, who sold to RCA Victor Records his exclusive contract with a young singer named Elvis Presley, forfeiting all the royalties of more than a billion records that were sold. That couldn't have added up to much, could it? So our text tells us about two choices that were made long ago that have a great effect on our biblical history. And the first choice was made by the parents of Hebrew slaves in ancient Egypt. The choice they made was to choose to defy the king's edict to kill all male Hebrew babies by hiding their son. That son turned out to be Moses, the great deliverer of his people. The second choice was that of Moses himself, and that was just as difficult. Moses chose up to give his, uh, his position of authority and influence and wealth in the Egyptian court, the most powerful nation in the world at that time, in order to be identified and associated with the people of God. Both of these choices were motivated by faith, and their lessons have both immediate and eternal consequences for us. Both choices teach us that the choice to live for Christ by faith is going to result in some short-term suffering, and eternal blessings. Let me say that again. If you choose to live for Christ by faith, the result will be short-term suffering, but eternal blessings. Every Christian must choose daily whether you're going to live for Christ or you're going to live for the things of this world. If you're going to live for the idols of this world, and whether you take up the cross of Christ and serve him, or whether you Choose the things that the world offers for you to serve. You make that decision every day of your life, my friends. Every day. But that choice is grounded in something. If you're a believer, it's grounded in faith. Faith in who God is. Faith in his promises. Faith that his word is true. Faith, trust in who God says he is and what he has done for us. But faith does something else as well for us, and that is faith acts upon those beliefs. True faith, saving faith, cannot remain idle or passive. In other words, you're not going to be able to uh, take both sides of the road. Sooner or later, you're going to have to decide which way you're going to go, and you're faced that decision really every day when you're confronted with the world. Am I going to respond by faith? Am I going to do the things God says I should do? Am I going to put my priorities where God says I should put them? Am I going to respond in obedience to what the word of God says? Or am I going to go with the flow of the culture? 
and avoid that short-term suffering and give up my eternal blessings. What am I going to do? True faith cannot remain idle or passive. When you embrace faith, your whole life is affected. J.C. Ryle wrote, A faith that does not influence a man's practice is not worthy of the name faith. There's no conflict between your belief and your behavior because whatever it is that you have faith in will inevitably show up in your actions. That's the point of our study here in Hebrews 11. Faith always gives way to action. You're going to have to make choices every single day. And if you have true saving faith, you will act according to that faith. And if you don't, you will not. And that action rooted and grounded in your faith, will be evident in the choices you make. And that's what we've been looking at all through chapter 11, isn't it? People who made a choice by faith to live their life a certain way. All through this chapter, we've seen illustration after illustration of people making choices that were grounded in their faith. Abel chose God's way and gave a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, didn't he? Enoch chose God's way and walked with God at a time when hardly anybody was walking with God. Abraham chose God's way and lived a life of faith. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, they chose God's way to believe God for things which they could not see. Each of these illustrations, there was suffering that occurred for their choices. There was some short-term suffering that they had to go through because they chose by faith to live for God. But in each of these saints that we've looked at so far, all saw short-term suffering consequences they endured as paling in comparison to the eternal blessings of God. They made that choice. And said, Lord, I don't, I don't know why you have me here. I don't know why you're keeping me here. I don't know why you've placed me here. And even if I don't see you moving in the way that I hope you do, I'm going to live by faith because I know by faith I believe that what awaits for me in eternity is far greater than whatever I need to suffer here. And so they made that choice to live their life accordingly. And the same is true for us today as believers today as well. Every day... You must make a choice on whether you will serve and worship and obey God or whether you will serve and worship and obey the things the world tells you. You should serve and worship and obey. And when we choose to live for Christ, we should expect that there will be consequences for our choices. Some are going to be good, and some of those consequences are going to be bad. Oftentimes, the choices will involve suffering, mostly at the hands of others whether it's persecution or ridicule or whatever it is. But we must persevere, my friends. We must press on. Despite the short-term suffering, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And no better example of that can be offered than the example of Moses, the lawgiver, who was a man who made many difficult choices 
all of which were grounded in his faith. Well, before we unpack that, let's go to Lord in prayer, asking to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the immense privilege I have to open up your wonderful truth. Thank you for all these dear saints who are here today. I pray, Lord, you'd give us open hearts, open minds to your wonderful truth. Father, we love you and we need you. We are dependent upon you. Lord, by your grace alone, the last breath we took was because of your grace. And so, Father, we need to know how to learn to navigate this world in a way that is pleasing to you. But, Father, it's difficult. But your word has given us the instruction of how to do that. And so I ask, Lord, that you would, again, give us open hearts and minds to this truth, that we wouldn't just hear it and think about somebody else that needs this message, but we would apply it to our hearts in a way that brings you honor and glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So hopefully you found your place now in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. Let's look at verse 23 together that was read for you earlier. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Point number one in your notes, by faith, the parents of Moses chose faith over fear. By faith, the parents of Moses chose faith over fear. Now, keep your thumb there in Hebrews chapter 11. But this story that this relates to is in Exodus chapter 2. So let's look back at that, shall we? And look at what this passage is referencing. Exodus chapter 2. And we find that in verses 1 through 12. Let's look at that together, shall we? Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take the child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. Now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he had saw there was no one around, he struck down the Egypt and hid him in the sand. The faith we are shown here first is not Moses' faith, is it? It is really the faith of his parents. 
Moses' parents are not a, not named in this text, are they, in Hebrews, I mean, in Exodus chapter 2. Both parents, we know, are from the tribe of Levi. That, that does tell us in Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. But Exodus chapter 6, verse 20, tells us that their names are Amram and Jochebed. Amram and Jochebed. And that they also had another son, Aaron, who would be high priest. And they had a daughter, Miriam, who was a prophetess. Now, Amram and Jochebed's marriage and subsequent children came at a very dark time for Israel. It came at a time when the oppression of the Egyptians had become ruthless, utterly diabolical, as a matter of fact. The Jews had gone from the privileged position that they enjoyed in Egypt under Joseph to a despised position as hard labor slaves. And because of his fear that the Jews were multiplying too rapidly, Pharaoh issued some horrible decrees to control the population of an exploding Jewish race. First, Pharaoh commanded that the Hebrew midwives to murder all the males immediately upon birth. When that plan failed, his command became more crude and effective. He said all newborn baby boys were to be tossed into the Nile as food for the crocodiles. Nevertheless, Jochebed conceived. And in the midst of these very dire circumstances, this Jewish couple had a beautiful son. Do you see that in your text there, beautiful? Now, there's a lot of discussion about that translation, beautiful child, because it hardly seems likely that the child was not thrown into the Nile simply because it was a cuter baby than perhaps some of the other babies that were, not, that were thrown in there. That's not what they're saying. I actually prefer the translation of the NIV here, which you don't hear me say very often, but I think they got it right here, that he was no ordinary child. In other words, God's hand somehow was upon this child. It was evident to the parents. Both parents saw that God's hand was upon this child. They believed that God would use him tremendously. Now, that view is supported in some extra-biblical literature, but we don't find it in our text here. I want to make sure we're clear on that. Regardless, when baby Moses came, his parents' faith was in full force. And they were so encouraged in their faith by the extraordinary nature of this child that the text tells us that they hid him for three months. Now think of how difficult that must have been for any of you who've been around a newborn lately when everybody else is giving birth and then throwing the child into the river. There's still a crying baby and it's next door to you for three months. Now think if you had already decided that you would follow the king's edict, but every night and all throughout the day, you keep hearing the cries of another child that was not. At some point when it became impossible to conceal his presence, they came up with a creative plan that floated him right into Pharaoh's palace. So Jacobed took a papyrus basket and coated it with pitch it was like a tar so that would, the water would not come in. And again, uh, floated it. She put her beautiful baby in it, placed it in the reeds and where Pharaoh's daughter bathed and set his sister Miriam there to watch. And baby Moses, of course, melted the heart of Pharaoh's daughter. Went up pop big sister with a brilliant suggestion of perhaps a surrogate nurse. And of course, it worked. So Jacobin got paid to nurse her own baby and to raise him during his early years. 
all part of God's providential plan. But notice also in our text there at the end of the verse, in Hebrews chapter 11, they were not afraid of the king's edict. Do you see that in the end of verse 23? Not only did they have faith, right, that God was doing something, they were going to hide this at great risk to themselves, incidentally. Had they been found out, what would have been the consequences for defying the king's edict? Not only would the child have been tossed into the river as decreed, but they would have lost their lives as well, probably Aaron and Miriam as well. So there was no appeals court to the king's edict, my friends. You either did it or the consequences were death. So the choice to obey God by faith always involves a certain amount of potential risk. If you've been a follower of Christ for very long, you know that being a follower of Christ carries with it some risk. That risk could be persecution or ridicule or gossip behind your back or excluded or kept at arm's length, even in family functions or being not invited to family functions because of your beliefs and your strong life for Christ. There are potential risks when you do that. But Amram and Jacobet understood that there were dire consequences for the actions, and they had, and had they been discovered disregarding the king's edict. But their by faith choice to hide their son exposed the entire family again to the risk of death. But instead of focusing or fearing the king, they chose to, uh, to obey God and deal with whatever the consequences were going to be. They chose faith in an unseen God more than they feared the king's decree of death. I want you to think about that for a second. Because there's an important application for us today as well. As we obey God and not man or not the culture, we can be encouraged here by Moses' parents' faith. Because there's going to be times, my friends, when we must choose faith over fear in order to follow Jesus. And if you have not been put into that position yet, might it be, and I say this lovingly, that people don't know you're living for Christ. And if they can't tell that you're living for Christ, maybe that's why you've not endured any of this suffering. All of the people in the Bible who were used greatly by God were people who chose to act by faith instead of by fear. So point number one, by faith, the parents of Moses chose faith over fear. Let's go back to our text now in Hebrews 11. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Point number two, by faith, Moses chose God over the world. By faith, Moses chose God over the world. Notice again in verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he, came, when he had come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, why did Moses do that? Incidentally, I mean, some may have looked at this as an act of ingratitude since it was Pharaoh's daughter who saved him out of the water. She was the one who protected him when her father, the Pharaoh, had ordered all the Hebrew boys to be thrown into the river. 
I'm sure she protected him from anyone who questioned his heritage. She must have been the one who took care of him. I assume she made sure he had the best tutors to teach him the Egyptian language and all of the things that would go with the privilege of being in the court of Pharaoh. All the best education, all the best meals, all the best accommodations. He probably need only clap his hands and servants would come and meet at every need. She took Moses in and raised him, yet he refused to be known as her son. Why is that? I don't think it was ingratitude. Although he must have loved and appreciated her for all she had done for him, he chose to follow and serve and obey the one true God, and he couldn't do both. And once he made that choice, he did not want to be joined in anyone's mind with Pharaoh and the lifestyle of the Egyptian and their religion, which he rejected. And he knew he could not keep a foot in both worlds. He had to make a choice. But think about all the consequences that accompanied that choice. Because by the world standards, he had everything he wanted and everything most people would give anything to have. He had great power. He had lots of money. He had personal servants. He had prestige. And when he got to the very apex of his power, he gave it all up. He just walked away from it. That could not have been an easy decision to make. By the world standard, it seemed foolish, as if he was throwing his whole life away. You've got everything that we are all striving to have. You got a great house. You got your own personal transportation. You have people waiting on you hand and foot. You have unlimited resources. You have the best education. Anything you want to do in Pharaoh's kingdom, you can do. You just have to tell him. That's it. There's nothing that would stop you but you yourself. So to the world, it didn't make a lot of sense. Moses made a choice when he chose to obey God by faith. He instantly lost all the world had to offer him. Note how the text puts it. It says he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. He doesn't say he chose to be mistreated with the Jews or with the Hebrews, even though those terms would be biblically correct. But he doesn't say that. It's as if Moses was saying to the Egyptians this. I know those Hebrew slaves seem troublesome to you. I'm one of them because they are followers of the one true living God. And I cannot stand by and turn my face away while they're suffering. Because if they're going to suffer, I will suffer. And if they're mistreated, then I will be mistreated with them. And what happens to them will happen to me. I'm a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's time I cast my lot with God's people. And that's what he did. And once again, we find an application for us here today. How was Moses able to do that? How was he able to walk away from all the things that the world says he should be valuing the most and give it all up to go and suffer willingly with the people of God? He did it by faith. Faith is the only thing that enabled Moses to choose God above the treasures of the world. Because he believed God and his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
But we would be mistaken, my friends, if he thought he just kind of closed his eyes and, you know, just made kind of a leap of faith and didn't really, didn't really think it through. Because notice back in our text in Exodus 2.11, it even tells us here in verse 24, he made this choice when? After he had grown up. This is a grown man making this choice. He's uh, 40 years old, incidentally. Stephen tells us he was 40 from Acts chapter 7. So Moses weighed carefully in the balance what the world had to offer on one side and what God had to offer on the other side. And the world's side seemed momentarily attractive and not real burdensome to carry. And on the other side was God and the eternal treasures he would have. And Moses chose to believe God, and he rejected the world. And so must everyone who's a true follower of Christ. Turn to 1 John chapter 2 for just a second and remind you of this verse. 1 John chapter 2. I feel like we looked at a lot of these when we were going through uh, acceptable sins. 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. Or if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You know, each month we receive prayer letters from our missionaries who serve all around the world. In places where there's lots of disease and war and terrorism, it's killing people by the thousands, sometimes by the tens of thousands. And when our missionaries tell us about these endless tragedies, they're talking about people they know personally. These are friends of theirs or children of their friends or parents of their friends. These are people they both know and love. But do you ever notice when our missionaries, they never complain about the danger they're in or the struggle they have to raise their family in the midst of that hardship. Instead, they remind us of the souls of these people, these friends and these disciples that they know so well. And every time we get one of these letters, and hopefully you read the missionary letters, it reminds me constantly to consider Christ's suffering and my need to be willing to suffer for him. My friends, we think suffering in the church today means that I have to do a rotation in nursery one hour a month or a quarter. Or that I have to teach Sunday school six weeks a year or ten weeks a year. We think that's a real burden to us. But here are people who would consider that not a burden at all. We live in such a prosperous nation and such a privileged nation that we have learned to accept those things in the body of Christ. They should not be so. How often we worry about the wrong things. Most of us live here in the most prosperous nation the world has ever known, and yet how difficult is it for us to deny ourselves for even small inconveniences of our time? 
The writer of Hebrews pointed to Moses as an example of someone who chose to identify with God and his chosen people rather than identifying with the world. And beloved, our lives should be taken up with serving the Lord no matter the cost. We may have to make a costly sacrifice if people are going to meet Jesus. We might have to suffer some short-term suffering to be a light in a place where there's no light for Christ or where the light is diminishing or where you're the only one still standing on the promises of God as we sang earlier. God may put you in that place, whether it's at school or your work or wherever it is. And you're going to have to make a choice. Are you willing to stand for Jesus Christ even if it costs you something? That's the true test of your faith. What are you willing to give up for those who need to know him? For those who need to live for him? Point number one, by faith, the parents of Moses chose faith over fear. Point number two, by faith, Moses chose God over the world. Let's look at our last point together, shall we, in verse 26. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Point number three, by faith, Moses chose reproach over riches. By focusing on eternal rewards. By faith, Moses chose reproach over riches by focusing on eternal rewards. Note first that it says that he was considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. What does that mean that Moses was considering the reproach of Christ? Well, literally, in the Greek, he would say this. Considering the reproach of the Christos, or the anointed one. Considering the reproach of the anointed one as greater riches than even the treasures of Egypt. How much did Moses know about the promised anointed one? We don't know for sure. We know from John chapter 8, that Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. We know from Deuteronomy 18, 15, that Moses knew that God promised to raise up a prophet like him who would speak his word. He knew of, his, he knew of God's promise to Eve, that one from her seed would bruise the serpent's head. He knew that the sacrificial system was pointing to a redeemer, who would redeem them from their sins. And so Moses considered that any reproach that he endured for himself with God's Messiah was more valuable than all of the treasures that were at his disposal in Egypt. Now quickly look at the end of verse 26, because it tells us why. It said he was looking to the reward. Why did he bear the world's reproach and walk away from all the riches and all the privilege and all the world had to offer? He was looking for a better reward than the world had to offer, my friends. He saw the glory of heaven and the promise of eternal life. But he didn't 
really give up anything of value, did he? To the world standard, it seems like he gave up all. But let me just remind you that all of the great treasures of Egypt that the pharaohs had buried with them have been looted and plundered centuries ago. None of that was of any value to them when they died. Not one cent. But Moses is still enjoying all the riches of of his inheritance that God and his children have when they leave this world. So what Moses gave up was corruptible and defiled, where rust and moss gather. But what he gained was eternal riches that are never defiled, that are incorruptible, and that last for eternity. When you look at it from that perspective, he didn't really give up all that much, did he? Moses realized that the world had nothing to offer him but temporary treasures in a temporary world. How was he able to choose short-term reproach over the worldly riches? By faith. By faith, he believed God's promises and focused on the heavenly rewards that he would enjoy forever. And the same is true for us today. You all remember that movie, The Apollo 13? You guys remember that movie? It's one of my favorite movies. Based on the true story. Many of you know after watching the movie, Apollo 13, that to conserve power, they had to shut down their onboard computer that steered the craft. Well, of course, by doing that, they began to drift off course. So they needed to con- conduct a 39-second burn of the main engines to be able to enter the Earth's atmosphere at the right angle. Because if they didn't, enter at the right angle, if they entered too steep, they would burn up before they even got through the first layer of atmosphere because the friction on their space module would be superheated and they would just disintegrate. But if they came in too shallow, they would skip off the Earth's atmosphere and with no power, they would be lost to the oblivion of the dark, deep space forever. There would be no chance of bringing them back. But how do you steer when you don't have any power? Well, astronaut Jim Lovell determined, Lovell determined that if they could keep a fixed point in space in view in that little tiny window of their craft, that they could enter at the right trajectory and be right back on course again. So the focal point that he fixed on happened to be their destination, which is this big blue planet in this dark black sky called the Earth. And the same is true for us, my friends, when we need to make tough daily choices for Christ. We need to have a fixed point of reference, and that fixed point of reference for us is our faith. It's the thing that we look to. It's the thing that we focus on when we have to make these choices and we have to make some course corrections. When we start to go down the wrong path, When we're faced with a choice of, do I stand for Christ or I just kind of keep back a little bit and not respond? See, Moses had many of the same choices before him that we do today. Should I enjoy the pleasures of sin or refrain for the sake of Christ? Should I choose the reproach of Christ willingly or seek the treasures of the world? 
They're the same choices that you and I face every day. How did Moses make all hard, these hard choices in life? How did he choose affliction over pleasure and reproach over treasure? He was looking, our text tells us, to the reward. He was looking to the future, to that reward. Moses wasn't just looking to the reward. He was also looking away from the pleasures of sin and the treasures of Egypt. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. You remember that verse? And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Moses is an example of a person that's described in Hebrews 11.6 who pleases God because he was looking forward to his eternal reward. He was living his life by faith, understanding that whatever he had to turn down here, whatever he had to suffer here short term, whatever God's plan was for him in his life, no matter how much reproach, no matter how much suffering he had to take, all of that paled in comparison to what he would receive in glory. And so he lived his life. That's how he was able to make those choices. That was his fixed point faith in who God is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Jesus spoke of the day of reward was like as he told the parable of the servants who invested the master's treasure while he was while he was away. You remember this in Matthew 25. He says this in verse 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. It's important that we choose what we're looking at when we choose to live for Christ. We must choose to gaze away from the worldly temptation and put our eyes on that fixed point by faith in the reward that we have eternally with Christ. Sometimes the reward requires that we go through some short-term suffering and reproach. But don't forget to compare the short-term suffering with the reward that's coming. And it takes great faith, great faith to look at the things unseen like our rewards and to look beyond our difficulty for today and to keep our focus on that fixed point of Christ by faith. Keep in mind, incidentally, who the writer is writing to. He's not writing to people who are very comfortable in life. He's writing to people who are suffering persecution right now. People that are being ostracized from their communities. People who are not allowed to shop in the market. They're, not, they're, they're, they're singling them out and persecuting them. That's who he's writing to. He's writing to people who have to make a choice every day, whether to live for the world and avoid all that affliction or whether to endure suffering for the sake of Jesus. But faith always banks on eternity. It always looks at the future and the promises of God by faith. In the short term, Moses had to endure short-term suffering with a bunch of rebellious, stiff-necked, redeemed slaves in the wilderness. 
But in the light of eternity, as Paul says in Romans 8, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that has been revealed to us. Or he says this in 2 Corinthians 4. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond comparison. My friends, if you want to live for Christ every day, you're going to need to weigh the passing momentary pleasures of sin against the eternal glory and rewards of heaven. And weigh the choice of suffering short-term affliction against the eternal joy in heaven. And then by faith... Choose to live for Christ each day. I'm going to close here with a little snippet of a sermon by J.C. Ryle called Faith's Choice. And in this sermon, he lamented that there are so many worldly and ungodly people in the body of Christ. And so he said this. They go through all these rituals and they say that they believe. But in practice, they daily prefer the world to God. And he asked, why do people do this? Why do they identify as believers and then live for the world? He's asking this question. And then he answers his own question. He said, they don't have faith. They have faith in something, but they don't have faith in God. They, they're not believing what God says is true. He says, in short, they do not have confidence in the words that God has written and spoken, and so they don't act upon them. They do not thoroughly believe in hell, so they don't flee from it. They don't thoroughly believe in heaven, so they don't seek it. They don't thoroughly believe in the guilt of sin, so they don't turn away from it. They don't thoroughly believe in the holiness of God, so they don't fear him. They don't thoroughly believe in their need for Christ, and so they do not trust him nor live for him. They don't feel confidence in God, and so they're willing to venture or risk nothing for him. This was written in the late 1800s, my friends. Beloved, the choice to live for Christ by faith is going to result in short-term suffering. You can take that to the bank. That's going to happen. But it also results in eternal blessings. And you need to weigh that carefully every day. So how about you? Have you made your choice to live for Christ every day, even if it costs you something? Do you believe what God has said about sin and about your need for a Savior? If so, then you've already made the most important choice you can for salvation. But because that's true, now you need to choose to live for him every day. Have you weighed in the balance the treasures of Egypt or the world against the riches of Christ? And have you chosen to renounce the world and trust Christ? If so, then you must be willing to, by faith, Choose your faith. Choose to act on your faith rather than your fear. And if that's true, by faith, you need to choose God over the world. And by faith, you need to choose reproach over riches by keeping your eye on the fixed point, 
by faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that's your heart, beloved. I pray that you want to live for Christ every day. And that although you face these choices, that you're going to stand firm and persevere, understanding it's going to cost you something. But everything of value costs you something. Even in a fallen world, just think how much it cost our Savior. Put that in perspective. He gave up so much for us, those who have put their faith and trust in him, to have eternal life. What is it going to cost you? And are you willing to pay that price to choose to live for him? I pray the answer is yes. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the reminder from your text, Lord, that it's not easy to live a life for you. Lord, sometimes people in our own families push against us. Sometimes, Lord, the people we care about most dearly push hard against us. There are battles in the workplace. There are battles in the school place. There are battles outside the church. There are battles sometimes inside the church when we make a stand for Christ. Lord, I pray that we would do that willingly, understanding the cost, willing to sacrifice and to suffer short term, keeping our eyes fixed on that fixed point by faith of you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And understand that everything that we gain eternally, that everything in this world just pales in comparison to that. Lord, if we could do that, it will give us the strength to press on every day and make the hard choices for you. Help us to do that, Lord, through the ministry of your spirit, through the instruction of your word, through the fellowship of the saints. Help us to do that every day, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.